welcome to More Orthodoxy. This is a channel dedicated to small Orthodox, Catholic, Protestants, and Orthodox alike. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Louis Marcos. Um, Dr. Louis is a professor in English at Houston Baptist University in the States, where he holds the Robert H. Ray Chair in Humanities. Louis earned his BA in English and History from Colgate University and his MA and PhD in English from the University of Michigan. While at the University of Michigan, he specialized in British Romantic poetry. His dissertation was in Wordsworth literary theory and the classics. Thank you very much for joining me today, Louis. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Marvellous. Um, we, we were just talking before we came on our, about one of our great Irish poets. Uh, yes, could you tell us a bit about him and what you like? Oh, I, I, was just, I was just saying, we were talking about, uh, before we started, I was saying to, to Mark, it's sad that, that uh, Ireland used to have, you know, a very high population rate, pro-family, pro-children, and almost overnight, They've just crashed, and they have one of the lowest uh, fertility rates right now. And I was thinking uh, of a poem by uh, Yeats. Now, Yeats was not, you know, a, a believing Christian, but he he saw some some truth there. And what was happening in Ireland? Let me see if I can find his poem. And it, it's interesting. You know, the, the troubles are always with us. And you know, Yeats, of course, was very pro-Irish, and he wrote this before the you know the division into Northern Northern Ireland and regular Ireland, and what he showed them was, you know what? Even if we get our independence, that could be a great thing, right? But if we get our independence and all we do is become another nation of shopkeepers like England, then in fact, we've lost. So his poem is called September 1913. And he says, and basically who he's talking to in this poem are the sort of rising middle-class Irish people, more, more Catholic than Protestant, rising middle-class that are basically starting to act like Scrooge, okay? Mm -hmm. A filthy lucre, putting money <laughs> above everything. And so that you may get independence, but if you sacrifice the soul of Ireland, what good is it? So he says, what need you, that's the middle-class, what need you being come to sense but fumble in a greasy till? and add the half-pence to the pence, and prayer to shivering prayer, until you have dried the marrow from the bone. For men were born to save and pray. Romantic Ireland's dead and gone, it's with O'Leary in the grave. Yet they were of a different kind, the names that stilled your childish play. They have gone about the world like wind, but little time had they to pray, for whom the hangman's rope was spun. And what God help us could they save? Romantic Ireland's dead and gone, it's with O'Leary in the grave. Was it for this the wild geese spread the gray wing upon every tide? For this that all that blood was shed? For this Edward Fitzgerald died and Robert Emmett and Wolfe Tone? All that delirium of the brave. Romantic Ireland's dead and gone, it's with O'Leary in the grave. Yet, could we turn the years again and call those exiles as they were in all their loneliness and pain? You'd cry, some woman's yellow hair has maddened every mother's son. They weighed so lightly what they gave, but let them be, they're dead and gone. They're with O'Leary in the grave. And, and, and that's the question, Mark. What, what is the cost? What is the cost? If, if we gain our freedom, even if we gain you know, independence, we gain more money, we gain a stable economy. But if in the process of doing that, we give up our soul, I mean, just, just to give you a good example in America right now, because I'm really afraid of this quarantine. What I really fear about the quarantine is what's going to stay with us forever. And what I mean about this, Mark, is 9-11 is almost 20 years ago, right? And at least in my country, we really haven't had another terrorist attack like that. Mm -hmm. And yet, we are still doing all the insanity at our airports and security. It's like, we will never get rid of this. And so we fight terrorists by imbibing a terrorist mentality of always being afraid of everything. And, and that's what I fear the most will come out of this quarantine. But if we come out unwilling to hug people or shake their hands. Now, you see, Mark, that, that's okay for English people, okay? But you're Irish, you need to hug people, okay? <laughs> In fact, uh, I think it was Thomas Cahill that said, my family, by the way, is all from Greece. And Thomas Cahill said that, I think that Ireland is a 
Mediterranean island that got lost <laughs> and ended up up in the, you know, in the, in the British Isles because, you know, my big fat Greek wedding, right? You, you can imagine my big fat Irish wedding, my big fat Jewish wedding, my big fat Hispanic wedding, but you can't imagine my big fat English wedding or my big fat German wedding, right? So there's, there's like, we use the word ethnic for Jews and Greeks and Italians, but we use ethnic for Irish too. We don't use that when we're talking about English people. So we don't want to lose that soul, that soul of imagination. And Mark, as I'm, as I'm listening to your accent, I'm reminded, it's not a perfect movie, but they've made a new animated version of Pilgrim's Progress. Have you seen it? No. And again, it, again it, it's not perfect, but some of it works well. But your viewers should listen to it, if no other reason, they begin with the lovely uh, Kristen Getty, you know, the Gettys in Christ Alone, such a beautiful accent. She begins with an introduction where she not only talks about what Pilgrim's Progress is, she talks about the importance of the imagination. And I think that's certainly one of the things that you're doing uh, in these videos here, that we need the imagination. And, and, and again, I, Ireland's kept a lot of that. I mean, in America, we, we love anything Celtic over here because it, it does... Maybe it's something to do with that pentatonic scale, but it, it speaks at a deep level. And Celtic spirituality is very popular because it shows that we can use like meditation and all of these things without compromising the gospel message. And so I think that's part of what your podcast is here, that we can learn. I go to a Baptist church, but I'm always learning from the Orthodox, learning from the Catholics, learning from the Charismatics, that we need to strengthen ourselves and in fact, there's a growing number of people here. I don't know if they use this word, uh, uh, Mark, but there's this phrase, a Baptocostal. <laughs> and, and what that is, is a Baptist, because generally we have like Presbyterians, we have pretty good Bible teaching, uh, but the Pentecostals have better worship. And so a Baptocostal wants, you know, that close Bible exposition, but with a little bit more emotional and praising worship and all. So I, I think that's what you're doing here a little bit in your podcast. Yeah, thank you very much, Louis. And uh, work like yours is inspirational because I can see that you're keeping the spirit of C.S. Lewis and Mere Christianity alive in our day and at the highest level. And your books are so well, well written, both academic and um, accessible for people like Lewis as well. So thank you for that. Um, just on you then, if we can talk a bit about your background uh, and some of the key events and movements in your own life that have helped form you. Is there, any, is there anything that comes to mind immediately? Well, what's, what's interesting about my background is I grew up, again, all four of my grandparents were born in Greece, came over here uh, during the Depression about 1930. My parents were born here. I was born here. And I grew up in the Greek Orthodox Church and came to know Christ in the Greek Orthodox Church. But in my case, the Lord moved me more into the evangelical world. But luckily, thankfully, uh, he didn't do it in that way of all oh, those people are wrong. He brought me to a place and, and, you know, God knew what he was doing, making me a C.S. Lewis scholar because I've spoken for every denomination in all different places because we all love it. And so I've been able to maintain, you know, my love of tradition and icons and all of that sort of stuff, liturgy in general. And, and it, it's really interesting uh, uh, because th the moment when God made it very clear that he wanted me in the evangelical church, I was actually turning... Uh, attending All Souls Langham Place. Have you been to London, Mark? Yeah. Okay, that's in, that's Oxford Circle, I think. That, that was the church where um, uh, John Stott was for many, many years. Mm -hmm. And I got to be there in the spring of 85, which was the, the, the minor strike, if you remember that. Well, I think you're too young to remember that. But uh, <laughs> in 1985, I got to spend that. I just, just loved it. I'm definitely an Anglophile uh, and, of course, a Francophobe. But I love the Irish. <laughs> but the... Uh, but, but anyway, while I was there, I was really, really praying about it. And it was just kind of an amazing thing that happened. Uh, after church, we were in a Wendy's, okay? And it's just wonderful watching the English try to eat fast food with you know, knives and forks. It's really wonderful. I had to teach them how to pick up a piece of pizza. But anyway, the, while I'm there, I'm really, really praying about this. And there was a wonderful old man there named George Stubbs. He was about 80 at the time. And he said, you're American, aren't you? I, I just got a letter from America. And uh, it was a letter about a, a couple that had been uh, at All Souls and they moved to America and they finally found the right Bible church and it was called the Mountainside Gospel Chapel. Now, I live in Mountainside, New Jersey, a, a town of about three square miles. So it was just kind of amazing, but it was kind of neat that it was at John Stott's church uh, right near it uh, that God sort of moved me in this direction. 
but again, the, the C.S. Lewis, all of that sort of stuff, my love of imagination, my love of mythology growing up, all of those things came together. Uh, I knew pretty young I wanted to be a professor. I, I, did I did English and history as an undergrad, but my first love is literature because it draws everything together. Um, and so I graduated from University of Michigan in 1991, and I've been teaching at Houston Baptist University. I just finished 29 years. And I guess the only other thing to add about me is if, if I'm anything, I guess I'm a product of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Are you familiar with that? That, that kind of small group Bible study. Although it's really funny because in America, we almost never call it InterVarsity because everybody thinks it's a sport. <laughs> um, but so I'm, I'm very much, you know, uh, I guess you'd call it the, the small group movement. I'm one of these people that always has students over to the house and let's, you know, worship together. And, and I love that. So I'm a conservative guy, but I guess I've got a little bit of the hippie in me. And I love that small group intimacy and whatnot. Marvelous. And um, then in your more personal life, if that, as it were, then are there any particular people that were especially inspirational or influential for you? I tell you, it, it, it's, you know, again, there's people, but a lot of it are authors. I'm very much a reading kind of people. I, I suppose the three people that shape me the most are Plato, so very much a Platonist, uh, Dante, and of course, C.S. Lewis, and, uh, you know, grew up reading uh, you know, his nonfiction is the first time I read uh, Narnia as a kid, I didn't even know they were Christian as a lot of people do. And I would come back again and again and again. Uh, and so all of those things really uh, inspired me. Uh, and and uh, I, you know, I was always very influenced by Homer and Virgil, by Wordsworth, very much a very much a romantic, a British romantic at heart, uh, Wordsworth. I, I am always defending Shelley. If you want, we can defend Percy Bysshe. I'm going to make fun of him. You know, the guy was 30 years old when he died. I mean, you put together Byron, Shelley, and Keats, and you put their ages together, it's about as long as Wordsworth lived, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but I think Shelley was asking all the right questions, and I think he might have matured into faith, perhaps. Uh, I feel the same way about George Orwell. I'm a big, huge fan of him. Uh, and, and he, you know, a lot of what he said overlaps with what Lewis said, even though he was an atheist and a socialist, you know? Um, so I'm the kind of person who... I'm almost more influenced by reading mythology than a regular Christian devotional book. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. I'm being drawn in. And so, you know, definitely the imagine, reason and imagination kind of person. Marvelous. And what about some of those individuals then? Why did they particularly move you so much? Say Plato, for example. You know, it's, it's really kind of funny. Uh, and, and, and as a kid, um, I remember that I never started drinking coffee. And, and why was that? And I, the reason I never started drinking coffee was I always heard adults say, I can't start my day without a cup of coffee. <laughs> and even as a kid, I guess I was a young old kid, I always thought that what it meant to be an adult, right, was to be free, that you didn't have these crutches, you didn't need coffee to get up. And so I, I think, you know, I was a little plaintiff. Maybe, maybe I was a little bit stuck up, I don't know, but I was a little plaintiff in the sense that it's all about freeing the mind and not being controlled. And of course, as I grew in Christianity, it was, you know, be, be controlled by the spirit, right? Uh, and, and, and so growing up, it was something about Plato. It was reading the allegory of the cave. It was the idea of seeking after that which is good and true and beautiful. And, you know, Dante with his beatific vision and, and C.S. Lewis with his focus on desire and yearning and, 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 uh, and, and all of that is, is what I love. You, you should get uh, Norman Stone on here once. He's the guy who directed the original Shadowlands, mm. uh, which was wonderful. It's actually better than the Anthony Hopkins version, at least in terms of its faithfulness to C.S. Lewis. Uh, and uh, so I guess my whole life in that sense has been a search for desire, that yearning that draws us towards God. Marvelous. So um, actually, I hadn't foresaw this question, but thinking about it now, uh, would you like to see um, Eros and Agape put back together, as it were? Because I know in theology, it tends to, to have been divorced, and uh, there seems to be a bit of a recovery of that now. Is that something? No, that, that is a good point, because, you know, Eros, yeah, we, we split it too much and think of Eros only as erotic sexual love. But Eros is also a kind of desire. Uh, I don't know if you're a fan of, uh, uh, who's, uh, who's the the great uh, sculptor uh, Bernini, you know, Bernini, mm -hmm. he did, uh, what is it called? The Passion of Saint, 
uh, Teresa. It's, you know, it's, it's where she's being stabbed by the little Cupid uh, with, with the love of God. Uh, and it's, it's a famous uh, statue in, in, in Rome. Um, and there is a good kind of desire that draws us towards God. And we need to, you know, it's just like somebody said, oh, should you only love your wife with agape love? Well, I hope you're also loving her with erotic love and philia, friendship love, right? And, and don't split these. And, and even though Lewis wrote the book, The Four Loves, he would agree. He wasn't saying that Eros is bad. It's only that the danger is if you take an earthly love, Eros, erotic love, or philia, friendship love, or storge, affection, if you take a human love and try to make it into a divine love, then you'll make it into an idol. As Lewis says in The Four Loves, love, when it becomes a god, becomes a demon. But it, in its proper place, overseen by agape love, right, which, first of all, we've messed up the word agape because we use the word charity, not knowing that charity is caritas, is agape, and we only think it means giving money to the poor. And because of Immanuel Kant, we have this idea that charity means giving to the poor, but despising it while you do that with a long face, okay? Again, we need the Irish to teach us to laugh a little bit here, okay? You're not more holy because you're miserable doing it, right? So we need to reclaim, let's just go ahead, to reclaim desire, which draws us, and Christ fulfills our mind, but he also fulfills our imagination and our desire. Beautiful. So um, then in your own work specifically, are there any elements or, or in your life more generally that you think have borne particularly rich fruit for others? And um, why do you think that they've had such a positive impact? I really think that one of the most common speeches I give these days is from my book, From Achilles to Christ, Why Christians Should Read the Pagan Classics. And I talk about why Christians should read the pagan classics, that we can be trying to tell Christians, particularly evangelicals, Catholics are usually a little bit better on this, but evangelicals that we don't have to be afraid of the imagination. We don't have to be afraid of fiction. We don't have to be afraid of the thought. Let, let me use it. And, and again, um, have you ever read How the Irish Saved Civilization by Thomas Cahill? Yeah. Great, great book. And what Cahill showed is that a lot of the pagan classics were saved by the least likely people imaginable. These Irish monks in the middle of nowhere, and God uses them to save these pagan classics. Well, I do believe God has a sense of humor. The last line of Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton, what was the thing that Jesus hid from us because we couldn't handle it? I think it was his mirth. Well, God shows his, 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 his love of humor that in my country, over in America, the pagan classics are being saved by literally the least likely people imaginable, conservative homeschooling Christians. These are folks who 30 years ago were Bible-only people, right? And they, at the same moment that our so-called Ivy Leagues, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, have abandoned the classics and only teach crazy non-canonical literature, if even that, yeah. at the same time, these people who used to be very, very intimidated by pagan mythology are helping it. And you know, now the Ivy Leagues want homeschooling students because they they're the only ones that know any context, that know the Bible, that know mythology, that have any idea of what's inspired literature, art, and music until very, very recently. Uh, so I think that's one of the things I'm passionate about. Bringing, the way to put it is bringing Athens and Jerusalem together. The Greco-Roman, the Judeo-Christian. I mean, we need both of them, right? As you know, when they put together the EU charter, they very specifically left out all mention of Christianity as if Europe is not an invention of the medieval Catholic Church. Um, well, sometimes we err on the other side and want to leave out the Greco-Roman. We need to bring the two together into this marriage. And I'll tell you, I have found that if you present it well, I mean, I speak to Presbyterians all the time, man, the frozen chosen, okay? And they are, they're the ones that are actually at the center of the classical Christian movement, Doug Wilson and all these guys. And I'll tell you right now, Matt, if you're, if you're I keep calling you Matt because that's your friend. I'm sorry, Mark. Um, I, I, I tell you, Mark, if you want to press a Presbyterian, all you have to say is, C.S. Lewis said, and oh, their ears go, oh, really? Oh, okay. I can believe in free will because Lewis did. Yay. So anyway, Lewis is a wonderful way to open up hearts and minds. I've even had a bridge to Mormons that I've spoken with that respect C.S. Lewis. 
uh, and and you you open up people that way. Just like in England, a lot of secular humanists love Chesterton, right? This the way they do Oscar Wilde, who by the way was also a Christian. Um, and and uh, you can open it. In my country, we have uh, the Renaissance Festival. I don't know if you have those over there. And the craziest people in the world go to that. People who would hate and despise everything the Middle Ages had to offer. And yet there they are. I believe, because they're attracted by goodness, truth, and beauty. I believe they're attracted by hierarchy. Right? Even in America, where everybody's supposed to be the same, we're attracted by hierarchy. And as Lewis said, if we don't follow real good people, good princes, all we'll do is follow uh, rock stars, and of course he would say footballers, and soccer stars, and make them into our heroes, because we have a natural desire to imitate that which is better. But if you steal our real objects, we'll just follow movie stars, you know? Yeah, excellent. So uh, let's just look at some specific works, if we may. So you've mentioned there before that you grew to love literature, and you've written literature, a student's guide, where you invite students into the great conversation and um, show them how the study of poetry, for example, draws us closer to God and his works in the world. Can you describe how we might do this and why it's so important? Well, I mean, one, one of the things, uh, one of the books that, that a lot of classical Christian schools like are from Plato, from, Plato uh, from, from Achilles to Christ, why Christians should be the pagan classics, that, okay, we're supposed to love the Lord God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but we should love him with our imagination too. That's a part of who we are. Now, again, we don't want to be driven by our imagination, just as we don't want to be driven by our emotions. But if we leave out the imagination, we're leaving out a part of us that God created. And, you know, the Bible itself is full of different literary genres. In fact, to fully understand the Bible, you need to understand the different literary genres. We need to go back and, and seek after a kind of language Poetry at its best is almost trying to undo the curse of Babel, right? The curse of Babel was babbling our languages, right? It's trying to get us back to what they used to call the language of Adam. That was the language Adam used to name the animals, right? And, and I always imagine that the words he came up with captured the essence. That's why the one word, is it also true in Ireland? Does everybody know the word onomatopoeia? Pretty much, yeah. It's funny. Like in America, these students who hated English, they always know that word. Now, <laughs> part of it is because it's such a stupid sounding word. It's easy to remember. But I, I think the reason everybody seems to know that word is because I think we have a deep sense that language should be like that. right? Because onomatopoeia, basically, it's a word that sounds like it's meaning. And I think we are hearkening back to a purified, I think it was Elliot who wanted to purify the language of the tribe. And, and that, that's, what, that's what great poetry does. I think it, you know, it can baptize language, it can baptize our imagination and draw us closer to the idea. I mean, it's crazy when people say math and science are closer to, uh, you know, more real than the humanities. It's like, or more true than the human. Well, what is, your, what is your criteria for truth? One of my criteria for truth is that it's eternal and unchanging. Well, the Iliad is still as true today as it was 2,700 years ago, whereas science changes its mind. It used to be every 50 years. Now it's almost every 10 years. So what is your criteria? We want to be drawn into a sort of literature that has struggled with issues that are still with us today, and we can be drawn up to those transcendent issues. Excellent. I think even um, in, say, in America, in Martin Luther King, that comes across because everybody obviously loves Dr. King and in the way he spoke and the arc of the moral universe and um, people are so enamored by that. And I teach kids uh, theology and philosophy and anytime they listen to Martin Luther King, they, they light up too. So that's most interesting. And it is amazing. One of the things that, that gives, and it's changing a little bit, particularly Martin Luther King's time, that the black preachers, what gives their language its beautiful cadence is it's a mixture of sort of, a, you know, just a regular vernacular language, but linked to the King James Bible. Mm -hmm. Because until recently, that was a big thing in the black church. We have King James only. But when you put it together, you get that beautiful language. I don't know if you've ever uh, read The Secret Garden. That's the language that Dickens, Dickens speaks. It's sort of beautiful language it's very very vernacular of of the earth 
but it's also got the cadences of King James, uh, and we need to bring that back. Absolutely. Um, so you, you are someone who has a lot of knowledge about a lot of different areas, a generalist, as it were, and, mm. and I think you embody the, the virtues and the qualities of the generalism beautifully. Can you tell us why this is important and why we should be concerned about different cults of specialization and experts? That's great. Whenever I speak about C.S. Lewis, uh, especially to a Christian crowd, I say, now I'll bet most of you in this room count Lewis as one of your sort of mentors or role models. But I'm lucky because he's a double role model for me, not only as a believer, but he was an English professor. And as an English professor, Lewis had the courage to be a generalist. Now, he did have a specialty. You know what his specialty was? Medieval and Renaissance literature. Okay, that's about as big a specialization as you can get, right? <laughs> and again, more and more, this model of specialization. So when I went to school, you have an English professor who, they don't, they don't just uh, specialize in, say, the Victorian age, but one decade of the Victorian age. We're so narrow, narrow, specialized, specialized. And, okay, I, I don't know if your readers know this, but C.S. Lewis was one of the bright stars at Oxford, but they never gave him a professorship, kind of like saying he never got tenure. And, and we should stop giving all the kudos to Oxford and give more kudos to Cambridge, who in invented a, 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 a chairship just for him, recognized his genius. But why was it that Lewis never got it? Well, part of it was he was open about his faith, but that's not the whole reason. The other reason was that Lewis dared to write books out of his specialization. Even Tolkien sometimes gave him a hard time. Leave it to the theologians, Jack. You know, that sort of stuff. He was kind of a curmudgeon. And the, uh, Lewis dared to say, no, we need to make these connections. We need to be what they used to call a Renaissance man. And so I've got a specialty. My specialty is the Romantics and the Victorians. Um, but I'm always widening that because how, how can I understand things and make connections if I'm not in a narrow box? And one of the ways we can see this um, is, that, um, is that we've changed the meaning of the word wisdom. Today, when people heard wisdom, they think rocket science is special. But no, the, the wisdom of Solomon is because he had discernment. He could make connections and see things. And so we're losing that. And notice, by the way, Mark, that at the same moment, we've abandoned true wisdom for specialization is the same time that we've marginalized old people and put young people at the center. Oh, we're, we're going to learn from the young hotshot specialists, whereas the wisdom of age is the wisdom of experience, and it's experience that makes connections between all parts of life. So I, I want to be out there making those connections for people and not sticking ourselves in a box. Excellent. Thank you for that, Louis. That's a nice clarifying link with old people because um, I think part of my motivation for some of my guests for this show that they've been more elderly persons and their voices are going unheard. So at least I, this is one way I can get to speak to them uh, kind of funnily enough through the, the new technology. So you're mixing right. the old and the new together. So if it's done right, I guess it can be a good thing. But um, so. yeah, I 100% agree with you. <laughs> So in From Achilles to Christ, Why Christians Should Read the Pagan Classics, you also say about Lewis and um, his, you quote his, the heart of Christianity is a myth, which is also a fact. Um, what did he mean by that? Okay, again, I'll, I'll bet most of your listeners here probably know that Lewis was an atheist for, for about half of his life. Mm -hmm. But what a lot of people don't know is that Lewis wasn't one of those people who went from being an atheist to a Christian, which is true of, say, Lee Strobel, Josh McDowell, Chuck Colson. There's been a lot of people. But Lewis didn't go directly. Mm -hmm. Lewis first became a theist, a believer in God. And then it took him about a year and a half to become a Christian who believed Jesus was God. So what was holding him back? And I love this because it, it was partly his love of mythology. Uh, Lewis was a big fan of The Golden Bough by Sir James Frazier. You, you know that book? Of course, James Fraser is now the hero of Outlander. So anyway, it's kind of funny. But J Jamie Fraser. But uh, in that book, and it's a very good book, The Golden Bough. Those who don't know it, if you've ever read Joseph Campbell, uh, then Fraser was the Campbell of his day. And what he did, he was what you may call a sort of comparative anthropologist. He looked at 
all the myths and legends of all the ancient people, right? The, the sort of, uh, you know, primitive groups. I, th I think that included the Scots, actually. Uh, but he looked at all the different primitive groups and he looked for recurring symbols or what's called archetypes. Mm -hmm. And if you want to understand archetypes, the reason why Star Wars episode four, five, and six were so good and forget about all the other ones is because four, five, and six are all focused on all different archetypes that come again and again, whether you're from Europe or Asia or Africa, we all recognize this. Anyway, Fraser identified a certain archetype that he called the Corn King. Now, your folks in the UK will recognize corn is what you guys call wheat. Uh, but it, it confuses Americans. In America, we say wheat. Uh, you guys can say maize if you want to say corn, right? Um, so the corn king or the wheat king, although there's a fun play on that, if you've ever seen Stephen King's uh, Children of the Corn, is a very clever play on corn and wheat. But anyway, it's, he's called the corn king or the wheat king because he's linked to the seasonal cycle of nature, life, death, and rebirth. And what Fraser discovered is all these different ancient cultures had a version of the same archetype of some kind of son of the gods who comes to earth, who dies a violent death, and then returns seasonally. And it's all got to do with taboo sins and the guilt of the community and all that sort of stuff. To be specific, if you are an Egyptian, your corn king is named Osiris. If you are a Greek, you call him Adamus or Bacchus. If you're a Babylonian, you call him Tammuz. If you're a Persian, you call him Mithras. If you're a Norseman, you call him Balder. Right? He appeared. He's even a little bit like a Krishna uh, in, in Hinduism. He, he he keeps coming again and again. And what Lewis thought is what Fra Fraser doesn't say it so directly because he was a Victorian, but he still basically believed that Jesus was the corn king for the Hebrews, right? That it was just another myth. And by the way, if you go online today, a lot of people try to disprove to Christianity by saying, hey, look at Mithras and all that. And it's like, okay, why don't you just listen to this story right now and understand that what you think is the greatest argument against Christianity is maybe the greatest argument for Christianity, right? Because there's a difference between data and the interpretation of data. So Lewis kept thinking, no, no, what, what do I care? It's just a myth. And then one day he was taking a walk around Maudlin College. Everybody should go to Maudlin College, Oxford. They charge you even to walk on their grounds. But anyway, um, so you, they become Americans, in other words. Um, <laughs> but they, they, you walk around this old Deer Park beautifully. Oscar Wilde it was one of his favorite walks to take. And as he was walking with, with Tolkien and another man named Hugo Dyson, as they were walking, Lewis suggested this again. And Tolkien said to him, Jack, what if the reason that Jesus sounds like a myth is because he's the myth that came true. So in all other cultures, it is an embodiment of our inbred desire. Why do all these different cultures scattered around the world have this same desire? It seems like it was implanted in us, right? And so we, 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 don't, we have to think about this, okay? If you're a Christian, you believe that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament law and prophets. But if all Jesus did was fulfill the Old Testament, then how can you call him the savior of the world, right? Because he's not just the Messiah of the Jews, he's the Messiah for the whole world. What we discover with the corn king is that in his death and resurrection, Jesus not only fulfilled the law and prophets, he fulfilled the highest yearnings of the pagan people. And so when he came, he didn't seem like a foreign god invading the world, he is the true corn king that speaks not only to the Jew, but to the Gentile, who speaks not only to my reason, but speaks to my imagination, speaks to the little pagan inside of me, as well as the little philosopher inside me. And Chesterton said it well in his book, The Everlasting Man, which was, had a huge impact on C.S. Lewis. Chesterton said, okay, if you look at the Magi, they're like the philosophers of the day. If you look at the uh, shepherds, they're the regular folk people. And we take for granted in Christianity that philosophy and religion have come together. But they didn't necessarily go together back then. Either you were into the wild pagan rituals and stuff, or you were like a Stoic or, or a Buddhist if you were from Asia, where you were just about the mind. And he says, isn't it wonderful that the Christ child draws together the philosopher and the pagan and speaks to all of those? So it's important right? 
that uh, you might know the story that Lewis had a colleague, uh, I forget his name now, but he was a, a, a real atheist. And Lewis overheard him say, strange, all this stuff about Fraser and the Corn King, rum thing, it seems to have happened once. People say rum thing still? <laughs> Not that I've heard. I haven't heard that in a long time, but of course we're talking about 100 years ago. But uh, yeah, rum thing, it seems to have actually happened once in human history. And so again, Christ fulfills the myth as well as the prophecy. Excellent. Are there any um, other parallel uh, great narratives like the one of the Corn King, do you think from a uh, Christian perspective that foreshadow and f find their fulfillment in Christ? I think they do. I mean, one of the most amazing plays is a play by, uh, by a Euripides and it's called the Bacchae or sometimes it's called the Bacchants or the Menids, but uh, it's a story about Bacchus, one of the Corn Kings. And in one sense, it's a very violent and disturbing play. But if you read it, it's unbelievable. Bacchus is offering bread and wine. Uh, the, the, the messenger of Bacchus is put in prison. And then there's an earthquake and the prison doors open. I mean, it's like reading the book of Acts. It's unbelievable. It's, it's, there's this, or if you read uh, the Odyssey, where, where Odysseus is a messianic figure coming back to set things to right. Or even if you read the Iliad, where you have Achilles struggle with his own mortality. Achilles is a type of all of us. I mean, if the Bible's true, we were all meant to live forever in, in, in the garden. But now we can't. Now we have to die before we can have that immortality. And so, in a sense, we're all Achilles struggling against our, our, our fate, against mortality, trying to understand it. Uh, a play like Oedipus, with its, 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 I mean, wh why are we so moved by Oedipus? I don't think anybody's afraid we're going to kill our father and marry our mother, but we understand there's something deeper. There's this, this taboo guilt. There's something rotten in the state of Denmark, and, and it needs to be atoned for. And so we're, we're, I think we're drawn to these stories again and again, even, even a story like Loki and, and Balder and all of these stories that, that draw us there. Um, and, uh, you know, again, the best example, uh, of course, uh, Tolkien was, uh, was an expert on Beowulf, and he basically invented modern Beowulf studies. And he said Beowulf was written by a Christian monk, but in a pre-Christian mode. A Christian monk's trying to understand and see how the story, I mean, Beowulf almost has a death and resurrection when he goes under the water to kill Grendel's mother, who, by the way, doesn't look like Angelina Jolie. Um, <laughs> anyway, but anyway, he comes back up and he fights the dragon. Again, these stories point forward towards a need. They're bloody. They're, you know, the Bible says we see dimly as in a mirror. Well, maybe the pagans saw very dimly in a dirty mirror, but they saw something. They yearned. As Paul says at the Areopagus, now therefore what you have worshipped in ignorance, I will proclaim to you as known. So let's take the general revelation given to the pagans and lift it up into the special revelation of Christ in the Bible. Marvelous, and I think you do that beautifully in your work. Um, and more recently, you mentioned Star Wars there. Are there any new myths that you find particularly good and revealing from a Christian ah, Well, I mean, if we speak in generic terms, the whole superhero Marvel thing, mm. again and again, we're, we're looking for savior figures. Uh, we're looking for scapegoat figures who are willing to, to suffer on other people's behalf. I mean. Here's, here's an example that's funny, okay? If you remember Star Wars Episode Three, Revenge of the Sith, okay? George Lucas was getting into a sort of liberal secular phase, and he thought, okay, I'm going to try to use my third movie to show everybody that, that morality is relative. And he, he tries to do this. That, well, first of all, he was making fun of George W. Bush. If you're not for us, you're against us. But he has this line where he says, well, the Sith are given to absolutist thinking. So... Here's Lucas trying to convince us that all those absolutists are the bad guys. But if you watch that movie carefully, towards the end, the evil emperor is talking to Anakin about truth. And he says, well, basically, truth is a slippery thing. It's in the eye. So the, the absolutists are the Jedi. What I'm getting at here, uh, uh, Mark, is that Lucas can't even force his myth to be relativistic because myths are about good and evil. It just doesn't work. We, we try to make politically correct fairy tales and they explode in our face and they come back against you. You can't do it. You try so hard, okay? 
The Mabinogi, man, those Welsh people are absolutely insane. You ever try to read the Mabinogi? Okay. They must have been on uh, early acid when that was written. But anyway, but even there, there's like a deeper truth, if you could find it, uh, deep down there, okay? And the, uh, yeah, the Irish fought a war over a cow, didn't they? Yeah. Oh, yeah, Queen yeah. Maeve, I think, and um, <laughs> it was yeah, I think that was that. I remember reading that one. But, but, but it, again, it, sometimes these myths are crazy and all, but there is a deeper truth in them. And we need for that truth. Let me give you an example, because you know, I teach Brit Lit too. And I, I tell my students what's really interesting about British literature uh, as we move into the 19th century is throughout most of British literature, most of the famous people you read are actually English. You got Walter Scott and a few others, uh, Robert Burns. But once you get to the 1890s and you spill over into the 20th century, suddenly all of the best English writers become Irish, okay? I already mentioned Yeats, James Joyce, Oscar Wilde, uh, George Bernard Shaw, all of these people. Uh, C.S. Lewis was Irish, okay? Dylan Thomas was Welsh. But my theory for that is that until the 19th century, so much of English literature was buoyed up by Christianity. It was really doing well. Now, when you get to the Victorian age, they're moving away from their faith but they're substituting it with what I like to call the Victorian spirit of progress. And so everything's buoyed up. And they go, but then 1890s, when what they call the malaise sets in, well, what is that French phrase? Fond de cycle, however they pronounce it. Uh, the end of the cycle, the end of the age. And what happens is England loses her forward thrust, but she has nothing to replace it with. Whereas Ireland, I don't know that they were necessarily more Christian than England, but they were, they had their myths and their stories that kept their imagination alive, right? So, you know, if you're an unbeliever, uh, you know, I think it's almost better to grow up in a Catholic place than a Protestant place, because at least the Catholic place has some magic, even if you don't believe it, there's some magic there. And, and I really do think that's why it, it lifted them up. So, so Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man is filled with Christianity. It's rejected at the end, but it's presented actually in a very accurate way. Uh, I'm, I'm sure everybody, you know, after, after listening to that sermon about hell uh, that's in Portrait of the Artist, is like, okay, I'm going, I'm going to, and and, uh, and Chesterton, you know, uh, he basically says something that's right out of uh, Portrait of the Artist. So the, although he said it first, every man that knocks on a brothel door is looking for God, which is exactly what happens to Stephen Dedalus. Uh, not that he says it's right to go to a prostitute, but he understands that these desires that drive us and what happens is we, they become misdirected and we go in the wrong direction. But it is our desire that's driving us and we need to get back on track. Marvelous. Uh, thank you for that, Louis. So um, in another book from, from Plato, The Postmodernism, Understand the Essence of Literature and the Role of the Author, you, uh, you go through some of the more postmodernist conceits and you mentioned some of those problems with the Victorian way of understanding things and so on. What are some of the most damaging conceits that they have about literature or life in general? The thing that drives me crazy, okay, is we've all said it, everybody's heard it before, Shakespeare was not for an age, but for all time, right? And I think regular people, we just take for granted that the reason we keep reading Homer, Virgil, Dante, uh, Wordsworth, Tennyson, all these sort of people, Shakespeare, Chaucer, is that these people, though they were from a certain time and certain place, tapped into a goodness, truth, and beauty that transcends any one given age, and sometimes any one given culture, right? Because the, the Japanese and the Russians, they love Shakespeare too, right? And as you know, uh, Mark, apparently Shakespeare sounds better of the original Klingon. Uh, <laughs> you've seen that Star Trek movie. But anyway, Okay, what do we get now? What you don't understand is most of the people in academia today don't believe that because they believe that there is no such thing as transcendence. We are all products of our socioeconomic, political milieu. Now this all comes out of Marx originally and identity politics, which is killing my country. Um, and the, uh, it, it was picked up though by a group of people called the New Historicists. And, Sometimes people think, oh, yes, of course we should look at history. Well, of course we should look at history, right? We need to know the context. Mm -hmm. But what happens in so much of these modern theories is that we become reduced to our genes, to our 
so, uh, our, our, our class, our, our gender, whatever it is, our race, and we're unable to think outside of that. But there's an irony here, Mark, because every professor, of course, thinks that they can step out of their socioeconomic milieu to understand them, right? You can't do it, but I can do it. Uh, like some of our really unbelievably hypocritical politicians. Uh, one lady, I won't say her name, but one politician lady was screaming at people for getting a haircut. Don't you know this is quarantine? And the next time she was on the news, she clearly had a haircut, right? And she said, well, I'm a public figure. I need a haircut and I have good hygiene. Of course, explain, suggesting that none of us do. I mean, but what I'm getting at is it's the hypocrisy that drives you crazy. They, they think they can think outside the box, but nobody else can. But this is so destructive, Mark, because wh why the heck are we studying this literature if we don't believe it is tapped something perennial that we need to... You mentioned Martin Luther King before. Do you know why the letter from the Birmingham jail is basically an essay that proves we need to have integration and civil rights and equal rights? But the only reason way that Martin Luther King was able to prove that is because he quotes the Greco-Roman Judeo-Christian tradition. He didn't quote Haley Selassie or something like that. He doesn't quote Mark. He quotes the only tradition that allows for this. Uh, and so we need to hold on to that tradition and learn from it and not look down on it and judge it. I mean, we need to be critical, but we also need to... We need a little bit of healthy bardolatry to return so we can learn from the masters and then we'll we'll criticize it. But we need to start with an open mind and be willing to learn from people who people have been reading for thousands of years. Marvelous. Yeah, I think uh, at a more personal level, uh, say of a child or whatever, I think Bishop Barn has talked about this. He'll say about if you want to play the piano, the freedom in that instance wouldn't be just banging on the keys. You have to yeah. learn first and then you can, you're free to play beautiful music. And I think maybe our civilization needs to do the same thing. If that makes sense. Well, there, I, don't, I don't know about, about UK and all, but you know, in America, you have these jazz musicians who say, "I'm not going to learn how to read music; it's going to cramp my style." <laughs> Nonsense. As I tell, as I tell students when you teach freshman English, there is such a thing as a rhetorical use of a sentence fragment, but not in this class. First, you show me you understand how to use proper grammar, and, and I'm sorry, Mark, but folks, folks in, in the UK don't understand how to use the semicolon. <laughs> British people, I mean, Lewis is one of the great writers, but he cannot use the semicolon properly. But, but, but you're right, you learn the rules. When you're, when you're a dancer, you start by learning to dance rigidly until you can then learn to be spontaneous and to be natural. But it takes training to be natural. So that's a good point. Hmm. Um, so in this book, you also talk about the poet in many different guises. Can you help us understand some of these, like the divine poet, the alchemical poet, common poet, playful poet, prisoner poet? <laughs> well, I'm sorry, which book are we talking about now? In the, um, from Plato to Postmodernism. Oh, in that, in that one, okay. Yeah, that, that, it's a lecture series uh, that I do with the teaching company. Yeah, uh, all of these, it's, it's really wonderful. I mean, like I said, I, I love the romantics because over, over the history of literature, there's been different ways of looking at literature and looking at the role of the poet, right? And the older theories are often called mimetic, which means imitation. And the older theory is that the role of the poet is to imitate nature, imitate God, imitate history, all of that sort of stuff. But the romantics start talking about a different kind of poetry that is looking inward. Rather than looking outward, we're looking in. And it's good. You know, it's been overdone. There are a lot of people now that think the arts is only self-expression. And that would have upset, uh, not only would that have upset Wordsworth and Coleridge, that would have even upset, upset uh, you know, um, 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 Shelley, Byron, and Keats, who were more radical. That's not what it was about. They just felt like if we look inward, we might be able to find universal truths that we're not finding here. The romantics wanted to go to the countryside because things change more slowly in the countryside. In the city, they're always changing. Everything's a facade in the city. So they went to the countryside, not just to commune with nature, but because they were looking for more durable, that's the word that Wordsworth uses, more durable and permanent truth. That, that's his preface to lyrical ballads. Um, but again, sometimes we've gone to the extreme that we think it's only about me. It's like, you know, a lot of poets today can't imagine writing a poem that wasn't in the first person, right? 
But you know, you could do that. Okay, you can write first, but then there are other kinds of poems that aren't first person. Uh, and so again, I think we've reduced it. Uh, here's an irony: uh, formal poetry, like you know, that rhyming rhyme scheme and meter. And by the way, a lot of old poetry did not rhyme, but it always had meter. It always had a set meter. The Iliad and the Odyssey and the Aeneid do not rhyme, but they have a set meter. Um, and the funny thing is, when we abandoned that for free verse, people thought, now we have more creativity, we can go on forever. But it's exhausted itself. So many people are going back to form because you, 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 you've lost it. It's, it's kind of an odd thing. Uh, uh, Wordsworth wrote a famous sonnet called Nuns Fret Not at Their Convent's Narrow Walls, that, that, that the, the nun or the monk finds greater freedom in that confinement as they're meditating on God. And there's an irony there, but sometimes we are freed by form. And even, you know, Yeats, all of his poems are, are formal in Yeats, which is interesting. Uh, but it starts to change a little bit after him. I think, unfortunately, uh, many of these problems are sort of systematized in our modern education system. And um, I've grown increasingly interested in classical education. Recently, I talked to Susan Wise Bauer. Oh, um, good. Talked to a few other classical educators, and I'm trying to dehypnotize myself from some of the right. prominent modern myths. So I, I was really pleased whenever I listened to your classical education, C.S. Lewis as an apologist for education. Um, I was just wondering what are some of the primary vices of modern education and uh, some of the remedies that a classical education offers? I tell you, first of all, classical education does have rigor, but it also has joy. Okay, mm -hmm. if you've seen Dead Poet Society, have you seen that movie? Okay, there's an example of a classical education that's become comatose, <laughs> rigor mortis has set in, right? So you can do it badly. Like you teach Latin, but it's only Agricolae, Agricolae, shut up. I mean, it, it becomes a dead thing. But if you, and I, I speak all over the country at these wonderful classes. In fact, my children both teach at classical schools now because I would bring them with me when I spoke and they saw the great camaraderie, the joy. So my son teaches Latin. He teaches third, fourth, and fifth grade Latin. And if you ask any kid, I love Latin, okay? They love it because they haven't made it into a dead thing. They've made it into something that frees the mind. That, that you know, It's just like I try to explain to my students, okay? A lot of students, a lot of adults in America, don't want to live on a budget because it's enslaving. Folks, if you don't live on a budget, you are going to become a slave to your creditors. It's only by learning to live on a budget that you are free to spend when there's something you really want, right? So, so they do have that rigor, but they do more than that. They, they try to form the mind and they bring in the importance of virtue. Now, again, I don't know what it's like over there, but in America, I thought they threw out virtue, but they didn't. What they've done in America is they've gotten rid of the traditional virtues and they've replaced them with substitute virtues. They call them values. So as far as I could tell, at least in the American public schools, there are five values they teach. Uh, tolerance, inclusivism, egalitarianism, multiculturalism, and uh, environmentalism. Today, we're pretty soon going to add social distancing, which is going to be the new virtue, right? So we're raising a generation of people. This sounds like an exaggeration, but it isn't. A young man says, well, yes, I do sleep around, but I recycle cans, so it's okay. I do my virtue, what is that phrase? You know, my, my, my virtue thing and all that sort of stuff. Come no, okay. I'm not saying that those are bad. Tolerance is a good thing. But when you remove it from the real virtues, courage, temperance, wisdom, uh, justice, uh, uh, faith, hope, and love, if you take justice and cut it off from real virtue, you get fairness. Fairness, fairness means treating everybody the same. That's not what justice means. Justice means treating everybody as they should be treated. Let me sum this up perfectly, Mark. I'm 56. When I was a kid, you would call a man a sexist if he treated men and women exactly the same. That's what a sexist should be, someone who doesn't recognize women as women and wants to treat them just like men, right? Today in America, you're called a sexist if you don't treat men and women exactly the same. So we've lost our sense of what is male, what is female, what is justice, what is good, what is true, what is beautiful. Everything's thrown together. And tolerance, understood properly, tolerance should mean 
We are all created in the image of God and therefore we have essential worth and dignity. That's not what it means. What it means today is I'll overlook your sin if you overlook my sin, right? Environmentalism doesn't mean I'm a steward of nature. Environmentalism means nature is more important than human beings, right? And people are the problem. The population bomb by Paul Ehrlich. Uh, or multiculturalism doesn't mean let's respect all people. It means let's throw out Western tradition and we'll use minority stuff to do it. But we don't really respect the minority stuff because anytime they deviate from what we believe, we throw them out. Okay, so it, it, again, these words sound good, but they don't, <laughs> I don't think that word means what you think it means. But it says, well, uh, so, but here's my point. My point is that if the public schools had simply thrown out virtue altogether, that would have been better because then people would. But by giving us substitutes, we don't realize what we're missing. We, 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 we filled them up on junk food. So they're, they're not dying because they're of starvation, but they're slowly dying of malnutrition. And that's the same thing in, in the books that we give them to read. We don't give them the great things to read. I remember I was naive enough when Oprah Winfrey started a book club to think that they were all reading the Odyssey. What they were all reading was books about victimization. And how victimization frees you, all it does is make you more of a victim. It's just a crazy state of affairs. Are you seeing the same thing in your country? Yeah. Or is it better? Absolutely. So they have the British values and they're along the same lines, tolerance, inclusivism, all that kind of stuff. But also, I was just thinking when we were speaking there, I don't know if you know the Christian philosopher, James K. Smith, and he talks about oh, yeah. secular liturgies or cultural liturgies. And um, I think too that in education i see these where they will have a instead of you'll know from growing up in the orthodox church that you'll have feast days and so on right now they've been replaced with different months dedicated to their chosen yes. different days black history month or women's history month whatever yeah ritually or earth day earth day <laughs> yeah so it's it's i think it's mixed to that um replacement of the virtues with new virtues right. which aren't really virtues and they, it's the kind of renewed worship um, and I think our job, and I've tried to make this my job, especially when I speak at schools, I mean, we, we do have to, you know, identify the phony virtues. But once we do that, instead of spending all of our time attacking the phony virtues, we need to spend our time promoting the real virtues and making them so beautiful and wonderful and compelling that people want, like, if, if you want to get your nation to stop eating junk food, teach them to eat good food. And then they won't be dead. The same thing, if you want to get your kids to listen to good music, don't keep shutting off the bad music. Raise them on good music so they will have their own discernment and move away from stuff that is painful to the ears and listen to stuff that's good. Right? Marvelous. Um, do you uh, think? Do you think that um, there's a pr perspective of classical education taken off in Britain from what you've seen? Because I, I'm looking to America and I see that even Susan White Barr talks about it and she says about how it wasn't the done thing in the 70s. And now if you talk to people over here, it's at that stage. They're like, what was that there? But, um, it's still early. Yeah. There's, probably more, there's probably more in China right now than in England. I, I will tell you something ironic that a lot of people don't know, though. The homeschooling movement, at least in America, you know who started the homeschooling movement? Were the hippies. Now, what do hippies... <laughs> And conservative Christians have in common. You would think they were complete opposites. But neither one of them wants their children raised by the man. I'll tell you with that phrase. America. But they, they realize there's a problem. So they want to step out. So it's really ironic because they're so opposite. And yet in one sense, they, they share this. We, let's put it this way. They share the understanding. Okay. In America, if you're a homeschooler, parent, the, the most common thing people will say to you is, you're homeschooling your children, but your children won't be socialized, right? That's the whole reason, right? And, and, and you, do you know that homeschooling is illegal in Germany, right? And you That's can surprise, you know, unfortunately. Everybody's got to be, boom. I mean, you kind of expect that within Germany, right? Boom. Everybody's got to be doing the same curriculum. And uh, again, America is a very individualistic nation, but it's also a very conformist nation. Americans, much more than people like in Ireland, England, are, are, get much more cognitive dissonance when they stick out. Like, 
in the whole UK over there, right? There was never a problem. Like a hundred years ago, if you were, let's say, living in England and your son was autistic, he was part of the village. You didn't hide him away. But I don't know if you know this, until 50 years ago, Americans hid away their kids that were autistic because they were embarrassed because everybody conforms. So America is a very strange country, super individualistic in one way, incredible cognitive dissonance. And we, we, we're not as good at, at our eccentrics as they are in other countries of the world. Uh, and uh, so it, 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 it's a strange sort of thing, but um, I hope it's gonna grow and move. It, it, it's very slow, but I think it will get out there. And let me just tell you what's really wonderful. Okay, you may be familiar with this in, in, in the book of Romans, how uh, Israel is the olive tree, right? And Paul is telling us Gentiles, be humble, right? Because God broke off the branches and grafted you in, okay? You're, you're a wild olive branch, but you've been grafted in. But, you know, someday God will restore the real branches. You know, we, we, you know Christian evangelicals, we, we have all different ways of interpreting that. But anyway, I would use an analogy because do you know what a classical Christian school is? A classical Christian school is what a Jesuit school used to be like before the Catholic schools went bad, but from a Protestant, often Presbyterian point of view. But all of these you know, very strong evangelicals who used to be sort of anti-Catholic, where are they learning this from? They're learning from Augustine, Aquinas, they're learning from, uh, uh, what's his name, Newman, Cardinal Newman. They're, they're learning from all these great Catholic writers. And here's the wonderful part about it. It's getting so strong that slowly Catholic schools are becoming classical. In other words, they're going back to their true root. And so this is wonderful, being a sort of ecumenical person. It's wonderful to see how we're coming together and we're realizing that me, as a believing Baptist, I have much more in common with a believing Methodist or Presbyterian or Catholic or Orthodox than I do with a fellow Baptist who's just social gospel and nothing else. Mm -hmm. And we partly have C.S. Lewis to thank for that. Yeah. Um, <laughs>